Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. If you were to visit northern Idaho and head around the Priest Lake region, you would hear the story of the woman in white. This legend dates back many years, and there are many different versions of the story. According to one version of the legend, The woman in white was a young woman who drowned in the lake many years ago. Her spirit is said to appear to travelers on the road near the lake, hitchhiking or simply standing by the side of the road. Some say that if you offer her a ride, she will disappear before your eyes. Supposedly there was a young man named Jake who was driving home late one night after a long day at work. As he drove down the dark winding road near Priest Lake, he noticed the figure standing on the side of the road up ahead. As he got closer, he realized that the young woman was wearing something that resembled a wedding dress. She looked cold and wet, and Jake felt a pang of sympathy for her. He slowed down and rolled down his window. Are you okay? Do you need a ride? He asked. The woman turned to look at him, and Jake could see that her eyes were dark and piercing and seemed to glow in the darkness. He suddenly felt a chill run down his spine. Yes, please, she said in a soft voice. I've been waiting for someone to help me. Jake unlocked his passenger door, which, if it was me, and someone looked at me with those kind of dead eyes, I'm hitting the gas. But Jake's a better person than I am, so he opened the door. As she settled into the seat, Jake noticed that her dress was soaking wet, and she had a strange smell about her. Uh, where do you need to go, he asked. The woman didn't answer. Instead, she simply stared straight ahead, her eyes fixed on the road. Jake drove in silence for a few minutes, his eyes flicking nervously to the woman in white beside him. He started to feel uneasy, like something wasn't right. Suddenly, the woman let out a piercing scream, and Jake swerved the car off the road in surprise. When he looked over to her to see what the hell was going on, she was gone. The car was empty, and there was no sign of her anywhere. Jake pulled over, and he sat for a few minutes with his heart pounding in his chest, and he couldn't explain what just happened. He knew he never wanted to see that woman again. From that day on, he made sure to drive a different route home at night. 
avoiding the winding road near Priest Lake altogether. Does Jake really exist? That story is debatable. That's just one of the legends that gets passed around about the woman in white of Priest Lake. And there's many, many more. It always fascinates me when stories get passed around how many different versions of that story there are. Like there's one with about the woman in white who she was a bride who died on her wedding day. Her ghost is said to appear in the woods near Priest Lake, dressed in her white wedding dress and veil. The story goes, it was a beautiful summer day when Rachel and Adam exchanged their vows at the picturesque Lakeside Chapel. Rachel was a vision in white, her long flowing veil trailing down behind her as she walked down the aisle to meet her groom. The wedding was perfect in every way, and Rachel and Adam, they couldn't have been happier. As the sun began to set, the newlyweds posed for pictures with their family and friends, laughing and joking with each other as they basked in the glow of their love. But as the night wore on, things started to take a strange turn. Rachel began to feel ill, her stomach churning with a sickening feeling. She tried to ignore it, thinking it was just nerves or the excitement of the day catching up with her. But the feeling only got worse, and Rachel collapsed on the dance floor in a fit of convulsions. Paramedics were called, but it was too late. Rachel was gone, her body failing her just hours after she had exchanged her vows with the man she loved. Years passed, and the memory of Rachel's tragic death began to fade. But in the woods near the lake where she had gotten married, there were whispers of a ghostly figure in a white dress and veil. Some say that it's Rachel's ghost, still wandering the earth in search of the life she was robbed of on her wedding day. Supposedly one night a group of teenagers ventured into the woods near the lake. It's always a group of teenagers. Daring each other to see if the legend of the woman in white was true. As they made their way through the trees they suddenly heard a faint sound, like the dragging of a dress over leaves. Then, out of the darkness, appeared the ghostly figure of a white wedding dress and veil. The teenagers froze in fear, unsure of what to do, but the woman in white simply just stood there, with her eyes fixed on something in the distance. As suddenly as she appeared, she disappeared, leaving the teenagers shaken and frightened. They stumbled out of the woods and swore they would never go back again. And to this day, the legend of the woman in white still haunts the woods near the lake, a reminder of the tragic fate that befell a young bride on her wedding day. Another legend seems to take a different toll of the woman in white, making her a vengeful spirit who was wronged by her husband. Her ghost is said to appear to men who are unfaithful or abusive, warning them of their impending doom. And Priest Lake isn't the only place in Idaho that has a woman in white story. The Tenton Flour Mill in eastern Idaho tells a story of a young woman who wanders the mill and the surrounding area. The ghost is believed to be Eloisa McKinnon, who was arranged to be married to a Mr. Tom Nelson. Tom was strange and old enough to be Eloisa's father. Subsequently, Eloisa was against the marriage. Her parents, however, hoped the arrangement would help their failing farm. Eloisa begged her parents to call off the wedding, and they refused. The wedding day was set for some time in October. Feeling trapped, Eloisa ran away as she was being fitted with her wedding dress. Her body was covered in the mill race, after plummeting to her death from a third floor window. As the legend goes, Eloisa's spirit repeats the event of her death every year on the day she died. She has also been seen wandering the mill and the grounds throughout the fall. Witnesses claim that she still wears the white dress making her the lady in white 
of the haunted flour mill. Hey folks, I wanted to stop here because I know Idaho has so many ghost stories to tell, and I'm really harping on you know the white woman and the lady in white stories of Idaho, mainly because I've been sitting on a woman in white story that I've been dying to narrate, and uh, this gives me the perfect opportunity when I was just you know when I was doing my research on Idaho and I discovered how many lady in white stories there were and how many different kind of folklore there was about it and all different kind of stories from Priest Lake and the Haunted Mill. And I just, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce that story. And I know a lot of you have been saying like, hey, we love the state stuff, but we want to hear more original stories. So I got one for you. But before I go on with that, I just want to let you know about a couple of things that I've got going on. I know I haven't been putting out the episodes weekly. I've reverted sort of back to my old bi-weekly schedule and that's going to be just for a little bit until I get you know all my ducks in a row so to say um I also wanted to let you guys know about my YouTube channel now I know I mentioned this a while ago and I had a bunch of you come over and subscribe and this really hasn't been any action on it aside from just my podcast episodes kind of auto uploading to the channel which you know it's just another place to listen to the podcast is on the YouTube channel but this week my first video is coming up and I know if you've been listening to the show, you uh, know my love of theme parks and haunted attractions and things like that that I talk about. But now the, the channel on YouTube is going to give me more of a, an avenue to really go in depth to those kind of things. So I'm going to be visiting these attractions and theme parks and haunted locations and all these kind of things and just, you know, taking you guys with me and just sharing my love of those things with all of you. So if you haven't already, head on over to YouTube and give me a subscribe, uh, Haunted American History Podcast or Chris HAH. If you search either one of those, you'll find it. The link will be in the show notes to make it easy on everybody. And uh, my first video is going to be this week. And I visited Six Flags Great Adventure in New Jersey's Scream Break. They kind of, they're doing a like a, a, a light fright fest, I guess you can call it. I know in October they do you know their Fright Fest. It's one of their big attractions, so they're they're opening the park. This is opening weekend. I was there, and uh, it's pretty cool. You know, it's a kind of a toned down Fright Fest. But come on over, check it out. I kind of go through the park. I also have like a Great Adventure Park, just kind of talking about. I just like to talk about theme parks, and basically that's what I'm gonna be doing there, and visiting you know some haunted locations, mostly in New Jersey right now until. I just get the time to travel around and uh, visit some places. So if you have any place in New Jersey that you know of, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, surrounding areas that you want me to go check out and you want to see on the channel, let me know and I'll head on over there. And if you do make your way over to the YouTube channel, leave a comment on, on the video. Let me know. Like, hey, Chris, I was listening to the podcast. I love the show or I hate the show or whatever you want to do. And I know some of you have been doing that. I know Spotify has just added comments. I think I mentioned it last week or the week before. And... I was like, hey, just, you know, tell me, say, hey, I like the show, I don't, or just go screw yourself. And someone actually did it. They listened to my uh, instructions and told me to go screw myself. And it was awesome. So, listen, if you like the show and you want to check out the YouTube, head over to the YouTube channel, leave a comment on one of the videos, be like, hey, you know, I'm listening to the podcast and now I'm over here and saying hello. And I'll say hello back. And I like to just interact with everybody or send me an email or anything you want to do. All right, enough uh, me yammering. This is what happens when I go off script. I just kind of yammer on, which is what you'll probably see on the YouTube channel. 
So, exciting. I know you got looking forward to that. Anyway, thank you, folks. Thanks again for all your support and your love and just the kind comments. I love every one of you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity and this avenue to tell my stories, to tell other people's stories, and to share just my love of creepy stuff and theme parks and all kinds of stuff with everybody. Thanks again. Love you, love you, love you. And uh, let's, uh, let's tell a scary story, huh? Hey, folks. You guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion. It's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. My earliest memory is of dying. I was four years old, holding my mother's hand, walking to church alongside her. She was wearing high heels and a blue skirt, patterned with red cherries and pears. As we walked, I saw a park across the street, complete with a swing sit and slide, and decided that I wanted to be there. So I wrenched free of my mother's hand and ran out into the street. My mother screamed and lunged for me, but she was too late. I was halfway across the road when a large gray truck sped around the corner. Don't worry, it missed me. The truck swerved and slammed on its brakes, skidding to a stop with me on one side and my mom on the other. With this obstacle in her path, I had enough of a head start to continue my sprint toward the park. I was deaf to her screams, now infused with anger rather than mortal panic. As I sped underneath one of the park's giant elm trees, the coveted swing set drawing near with every tiny step, and then just as suddenly as I had taken off, I collapsed, skidding to an ungraceful halt on the ground spoiling my Sunday's best with grass stains and dirt. I was being chased. From below, my friends cheered wildly. I was the undisputed champion of time tag and had been all summer. But my title was in jeopardy. Zach was gaining fast. He and I were the only two players left and the timer on my wristwatch said I only had to evade him for 23 more seconds. But why? I asked myself as I skinned my knee against bark, had I climbed this stupid tree? I had more questions too, like, who am I? Where did mom go? And why am I so much bigger now? Higher and higher we climbed. Zach could almost reach out and touch me. 14 seconds. 
I slid myself along the branch, hoping to reach another one nearby. Instead, my shoe skidded across a patch of smooth wood, and down I went. My stomach seemed to fall at a different speed than the rest of me. I hadn't realized I climbed so high. I hit the ground, not with a thud, but with a revolting crunch. I'd landed on my back and had felt my ribs break all at once. There was no pain, just a peculiar, powerful tightening in my chest, like I was being squeezed by a giant snake. I was going to have to go to the hospital, and my parents couldn't afford it. How could I have been so stupid? Dad's going to kill me, I thought hazily, assuming I don't die right here and now. I was vaguely aware of the swing set off to the side, wafting in the summer breeze, and of my friends gathering around me in reverence. As my mind faded back into reality, a high-pitched beeping cut the silence like a scalpel, signaling that I was still the undisputed champion of time tech. I awoke, terribly confused, in the shade of a giant elm. I heard shouts and sat up to see the driver of a gray truck running over to me, my mother trailing behind me barefoot, clutching her high heels. When she reached me, she dropped her shoes and took my face in both her hands. Are you all right? She said, her voice utterly frantic. What happened to you? Tripped, I said, because it seemed like the thing to say. I suppose, in truth, I had no idea what happened to me. I couldn't even begin to process it. She let out her breath in a rush and clutched my head tightly to her breast. Don't you ever do that again, she said. I won't, Mom, I replied. It was the first time I died. It would be far from the last. It's amazing the things you don't think of when you're only eight years old. Though I'd never told anyone about it, I remembered clearly the strange and terrible experience I'd had on that misbegotten walk to church. And I, along with every other child in town, was constantly reminded of the dangers of climbing trees. The sad case of Quinn Pleasance, a local kid who had died years earlier from falling from the tree, was happily weaponized by adults as a cautionary tale. There was an obvious connection to be made between these two occurrences, but somehow, I had not made it yet. That wouldn't be true for much longer. It was the summer of 2009. I was walking with my best friend Caden down Main Street in Swiss Knife, which I still call my hometown, even though I haven't lived there for over a decade now. Before you ask, it's named after the Swiss Knife River. You could ask me how the river got its name, but I'm not an encyclopedia, and I couldn't tell you. Look, the point is, we had just gotten out of a movie at the Sticky Shoe, which was the universally and affectionately used moniker for our town's dollar theater. No need to ask where that name came from. It was summer, so the street was hot. The movie had been good, so we were excited. And yet, a chilly sense of turmoil rested unspoken between us. The past few months had been bad for my parents. So bad, in fact, that my mother had begun hinting that she and I would not be residents of Swiss Knife for much longer. As for my dad, well, he didn't talk to me much anymore. Or even look at me for that matter. Between the two of them, there was a carnival of bitterness and betrayal to which I would be totally oblivious until years later. All I knew then was that these summer days in Swiss Knife, with Caden, and with the sticky shoe, might be running out. And thus they were filled with a sense of urgency that could at times verge on ruinous. Still, the dread was buried deep on this particular July afternoon and my best friend and I strolled down Main Street and talked animatedly about the movie we'd just seen. No, no, the most cool part was when Caden shivered violently, abruptly, and then stopped dead in his tracks. 
Whoa, he said with a bit of a laugh. I just got crazy goosebumps. I turned and began to reply. That's weird. It's so hot. And before I could say outside, I was thrown to a new world inside my mind. A world where it was not Caden by my side, but a pretty teenage girl. A world in which I was much taller and could see tanned and lean muscle on my forearm, where before there had been only pale skin and freckles. The pretty girl was clutching my arm and laughing merrily. I was in Swiss Knife, on the exact same part in Main Street where Caden and I had just been walking, and that beginning of fall nip hung in the air. The street was mostly empty, save for a few people half a block ahead who exited the new Cinema 6, a movie theater in our town, more quickly than us. But what was the rush? I was with Sadie, my best girl, and nothing else mattered. Strangely, I had also never seen Sadie before in my life, and the term best girl sounded odd to me. Did I mean girlfriend? And why were we both wearing clothes that looked like they could be from my grandparents' photo albums? I felt it just for a few seconds before I saw it. A sense of unease, as if something was very wrong, but I didn't know what. And then headlights from the opposite side of the road, veering over towards us. They were so bright that I couldn't see the face of the person driving. All I could see was the car. A bulky, brand new Chevy that, by the summer of 2009, might have been sold as an antique. The car struck me with a force that I couldn't have imagined. And it hit Sadie, too. And then it hit side the outside of the wall of the pizza shop behind us. I was pinned in between. There was no pain. I couldn't see Sadie. My last glimpse of her had been the canary yellow shoe soaring somewhere off to the left. I smelled pizza and gasoline. As my head slumped down on the twisted hood of the Chevy and my vision blurred, I vaguely wondered if I had been hurt too bad to play in the homecoming game next weekend. Dude, Dude, wake up. I was on Main Street. My head was throbbing badly, and Caden was kneeling next to me, shaking my shoulder. I opened my eyes fully and sat up, hand on the back of my head. What happened, I asked. I don't know, Caden said, eyes wide. You just, like, passed out. You hit your head. Huh? I said, tears stinging in my eyes. From the pain, but also from what I'd just seen. It had been so horrible, so real. Let's go to my house, Caden said, perhaps in an effort to stop me from crying. We have Otter Pops. Three nights later, my grandma, my mom's mom, came over. Dad had moved into a hotel room that day, which I remember finding strange because hotels were places where you stayed when you went to Disney World and stuff like that. Grandma lived close, so she came to help mom, who had been crying a lot. I was totally bewildered by the whole unhappy circumstance, but knew my mother well enough not to ask too many questions about it. But there was something else I'd been curious about, too. Grandma? I asked over dinner. You lived here your whole life, right? In Swiss Knife? Oh, since I was about 14? Yep. Summer after 8th grade, Daddy got a factory job and took us here, and I've been here ever since, she said. In fact, you know old Buck? Excuse me. Mr. Wilfork down the block? We rented out his basement for a year while Daddy was building the new house. 57, that would have been. No, 58. Or was it? Ah, hell, mine's not what it used to be. The answer was in keeping with every other answer I'd heard her give about her past. 
in which she'd answer not only the question you asked, but also five others you didn't. And then, close by, lamenting that her mind just wasn't what it used to be. Did anyone ever get hit by a car on Main Street, I asked. A long time ago, by Sticky Shoe? Uh, oh, yes, she said, eyes almost alight with memory. Dreadful thing. You know, it was Sadie Prentice and that boy she was with. Well, that wasn't her last name at the time, of course. It was, uh, ah, hell, anyway. Hit by some out-of-towner, drunk off his ass. Mom, my mother interjected. Well, he was, Grandma went on indignantly. Killed himself, the fool. And that football boy, too. Dead right there on the street, apparently. And of course, she said, nodding to me. You've seen what happened to poor Sadie. I looked at Grandma, uncomprehending. Miss Prentice, Mom said to me from church? My eyes went wide. Miss Prentice, whose wheelchair had been perched in the aisle of our church every Sunday for as long as I can remember, that was her. That was the pretty girl I'd seen on my arm. Inside my mind, puzzle pieces that I hadn't even known existed were rapidly fastening together. Now why are you bringing up a crazy thing like that, Grandma asked. I shook my head, partially in response, and partially to quell the memory of what Quinn Pleasant's ribs had sounded like when they cracked through his lungs. Uh, no reason, I said feebly. Will you pass the corn, please? I never did tell Caden what happened to me on Main Street that day. Not that I had much occasion to. Mom and I moved three weeks later. We found ourselves in yet another smallish, oldish town, full of people who have lived there most of their lives. A lot of those places around, I guess. This one was called Wheeler, which was a very boring name for a town as far as I was concerned. There was a main street on Wheeler, but no dollar theater. No theater at all, actually. It had been ten months to the day since I'd seen Dad. At first, I thought he was just busy, but I'd quickly come to realize that he was a man who wanted nothing to do with me. I'd spent a long time angry about it. But when Mom let slip to me years later that he wasn't my real dad, part of me understood. Mom had been drunk when she told me. She'd really first taken the drinking in Wheeler, even on the day we moved into our sprawling, decrepit new rental, which apparently had once functioned as some sort of hospice care facility before being remodeled. I'd had unloaded most of the U-Haul with Derek, some weird guy my mom found to help us move. While Mom sipped wine from a steadily replenishing glass and slurred instructions on where to put down boxes, there had been a lot of weird guys around ever since we moved to Wheeler. But these sort of things sail over a nine-year-old's head. And so for me, life in Wheeler went back to a close approximation of normal. I started at a new school, made new friends, and Grandma even drove up for dinner on Sunday nights. On one of those nights, she tottered up the driveway, struggling with a large container. I rushed out the front door to help her. What's this? I asked, reaching out to take the container, a large crate from her. She didn't need to answer. A small yip from inside the crate announced the arrival of Chuck, a ten-week-old Siberian husky who I immediately loved with my whole heart. Chuck wasn't a substitute for a dad, but he was something that kept me busy, and maybe that's all you really need in the end. I fed Chuck, trained him, took him on runs, and cleaned all his poop. I gave him baths, clipped his nails, and kept an eye out for any health problems. When necessary, I scheduled veterinary appointments myself. In return, 
He gave me undying loyalty and the sort of starstruck giddy love only a puppy can manage. There was one tiny problem. Chuck didn't like the house. Or at least he didn't like certain parts of the house. I couldn't figure it out. He'd get on my bed, but never the guest bed. He'd whine wearily at one random place on the kitchen floor, and he wouldn't go inside my mom's room at all. At first, I thought it was just a weird personality quirk. It wasn't until one day in the fall of 2011 that I realized it might be something else entirely. I'd just gotten home from school, fifth grade now, and Chuck greeted me at the door with sloppy kisses. I set my backpack down, got myself a glass of ice water from the fridge, and walked up the stairs. Chuck keeping pace at my side. As I turned down the long upstairs hallway toward my bedroom, though, Chuck stopped in his tracks, whimpering softly. What's wrong, boy? I asked. He just sat on his hind legs, staring intently at the closed door right next to my bedroom, the guest room. Yeah, I know you don't like it in there, I said with a shrug. I took another couple of steps toward my bedroom when Chuck started to growl. He never growled. I looked back at him, eyebrows raised. He was more alert than I'd ever seen him. Something was wrong. I must have stared at that door for a solid minute. Mom? I eventually called out, my voice a bit muted, hesitant to make a loud noise. I didn't know whether or not she was home. I'd given up trying to figure out her schedule. Chuck took a careful step toward the guest room door, then immediately retreated back. My heart was thumping in my throat. I took a deep breath, then with a calming palm, I opened the guest room door and looked inside. But it wasn't the guest room at all. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was the same room. Same ceiling, same window, same notch in the far wall. But it was different. A ghastly papering of cream and teal stripes, totally unfamiliar, lined the walls. The bed, which sat right where the guest bed had, was odd-looking, with a painted metal frame and clean white linens. The only thing that seemed out of place was an ominous dark stain on the floor beside the bed. This wasn't quite the same as that long-ago day in the park, or what I'd seen outside the sticky shoe, but it felt similar. I was glimpsing something, a memory. I just wasn't enveloped in it, yet. But that was coming. I could tell, like a torturous sneeze that just wouldn't. Woof. One sharp, devastatingly loud bark from Chuck snapped me back to my senses. My chest heaved and my hand shook. I looked around and it was the guest room again, through and through. Navy blue wallpaper, my parents' old bed, a small brown dresser my grandma had given us years earlier. Yep, the guest room. Same as always. Only now, I couldn't help wonder, what happened here? That question had an answer, and it was more noxious and foul than I could have ever imagined. I wouldn't begin to learn it for another ten months. July 2012. I remember that date so well because Wheeler had gotten a brand new state-of-the-art movie theater, but I'd been scared to go. A shooting in a Colorado theater had just shocked the nation. I began to think more deeply about the things I'd seen, the deaths I'd seemingly experienced, albeit through another's eyes. Why had those visions come to me? Why had I been granted this terrifying macabre privilege? Surely there was a reason. 
and I had determined that it was up to me to discover it. And so it was that I resolved to spend the night, not in my own bed, but on the old lumpy mattress in the guest room next door. I began the evening more melodramatically than I now care to admit, lighting candles and chanting the only Latin words I knew. E plerebrus unum. I briefly considered sprinkling salt on the floor, but I knew I'd never get it out of the cracks in the hardwood. Still, with only a few horror movies under my belt, I had managed to throw together a perfectly respectable seance, and I hoped that it would set the mood for any ghosts who wanted to show me how they died. I went to bed disappointed, drifting away in the wee hours of the morning, having spent a thoroughly boring night staring at the moonlight reflected against the notch in the wall. I woke briefly before the light was out and was first confused why the window was on the wrong side of the room. Then I remembered that I was in the guest room, and made to rub my eyes, and then I was jarred fully awake by the sight of a saggy, wrinkled, liver-splotched hand. I attempted to sit bolt upright, but received a sharp pain in my spine from my trouble, and scarcely moved an inch. I felt so, so tired, almost dead really, but there was no fear of the end, only a resigned, reluctant acceptance. The party had grown stale and it was almost time to leave. Death had already come for my parents, my husband, my old friends. I could be no different. So why were my palms sweating? Why was my weak, decrepit heart pounding against my ribcage in desperation? I was scared, terrified even, but of what? Did not know. I just couldn't remember. The doorknob turned with a creak and the door swung open and walked in the devil herself, the one who frightened me even when death did not, the woman in white. Hello, Dorothy, she said. A light smile graced her beautiful lips. Why did she have to be beautiful? It would somehow be easier if she was not. I turned my head slightly to see what she wheeled behind her, a cart with a tray on top. On the tray were various needles, formulas, Units of serrated, violent-looking surgical equipment. What would she do with them? I could not remember everything, but I remembered the screams. The screams of all the others. No, I croaked. No, please. There, there, Dorothy, the woman in white crooned. She closed the door behind her, and the lock clicked with finality. This will only hurt for a while. I suppose we've reached the part of the story where I tell you about Mrs. Vance. Mrs. Vance was my 8th grade history teacher. Most of the students liked her a lot. I never did. And for a long time, it was a complete mystery why. She was nice, funny, and obviously cared about her job. Though middle-aged, she was also exceptionally pretty, in a way that sometimes made it hard to focus on what she was saying. We spent most of the year in her class talking about the history of our state but had recently turned toward family history and how it was kind of a history we could easily access. We were encouraged to talk about our parents, our grandparents, and learn as much as we could about our genealogy. The final project was to present our findings to the class. To demonstrate, Miss Vance prepared a presentation about her own family history. She began by talking about herself, how she'd grown up in Wheeler, been raised by a single mother, and never married, though she did have a son who was grown up and living far away. The slide flipped from a picture of her child to a picture of her father, 
from modern-day color to old-timey sepia. Unfortunately, I never really knew my dad, she said. And there was clear regret in her voice. He disappeared when I was very, very young. He might have run away. Something might have happened to him. We'll probably never know. But I suppose every family has a few mysteries. She cleared her throat. <clears throat> my mother Edith, however, the real Mrs. Vance, as I like to call her, still lives in Wheeler to this day. Though she's a very old lady now. The picture on the slideshow changed once more, and I audibly gasped as the woman, movie star beautiful, appeared in the classroom screen, smiling sweetly and dressed in a medical uniform. White, of course. A few kids turned to look at me, and I did my best to turn my gasp into a cough. I barely even registered as Mrs. Vance gushed about her mother, who had been an administrator and hospice nurse at the Halberton home, a local facility where elderly people would go to live out their final days. I was too numb with shock to notice much of anything besides the photograph, taken in the building that was now my home, of a woman who I knew to be a murderer. I had begun to think of my visions as marks, left unwittingly by terrible deaths. I had no idea why I could see them, or what I was supposed to do with them. But I knew one thing for certain. Edith Vance was the most vile woman who had ever been born. I had learned to live with the memory, not even mine, of falling from that tree in the park. The smell of gasoline as it singed someone else's nostrils outside the theater that would one day be known as the Sticky Shoe. But those were nothing, nothing compared to what had happened to the poor woman called Dorothy on the night that the woman in white walked into her room. The former, I remembered. The latter, I could never forget. It hadn't been an isolated case either. Dorothy had known to fear her, recalled the screams of the others. Even as her mind was fading, she could recall little else. How many others had there been? I sat on this question, and on the identity of the woman in white, for nearly three years. I simply didn't know what to do. At least not until the day Mom finally got the pantry door unstuck. The house had been a fixer-upper, to put it charitably, when we bought it years earlier. The realtor had told Mom that we'd have a pantry, in theory, but that the previous owner hadn't even been able to get the door open. There was ample enough cupboard space that we'd never put much effort into it beyond a few errant tugs at the knob. But on this day, Mom's drinking habit had finally tipped beyond what our cupboards and fridge could hold. She needed somewhere to put the rest of her liquor, and it was with an addict's determination for a fix that she managed the impossible. It was so wonderful to have a pantry she'd gush that evening, only she'd have to figure out how to get rid of that terrible chill in there. I waited for Mom to retire to her bedroom for the night before making my way to the pantry door. I'm still not sure how, but I knew I'd find a mark inside. Only the details remained, waiting to be discovered. I opened the door. I opened the door, shivering as I stepped inside, grateful to be away from the Wheeler winter air. Jesus, this place was freezing. A fresh pang of guilt perched atop an already abundant layer of stuff. How could Sarah have left him all the way out here? There was a mahogany coat rack near the door but I had no intention of removing my coat. Tattered though it was, I was numb with cold and wore only a thin blouse underneath. I stamped my feet on the mat to knock off the snow, then strode to the front desk, where an impossibly gorgeous woman, dressed in white, looked up from her work. 
She smiled sweetly at me. How can I help you, ma'am? I spoke clearly, forcefully, in hopes that an air of confidence might help my chances. I'm here to pick up my father, Vernon Chadwick. The woman, Edith, her name tag said, continued to smile, and though the sweetness faded a bit, and you are? I'm his daughter, Geraldine. Edith opened a drawer and pulled out a file. It says here that Vern was placed by a woman named Sarah Trevor. My sister, I said, struggling to keep the disdain from my voice. She shouldn't have dumped him here like this. I've only just found out. I'm terribly sorry, Edith said, and she did not look sorry at all. But your sister has already paid a substantial sum to place your father in our care. I'm afraid I can't allow anyone except her or her husband to remove him. What if I paid you, I asked, desperation creeping into my voice. I had no money to pay, of course, but I had bigger problems at the moment. You don't understand, Edith said. There are policies in place here, regulations, paperwork. I can't just let anyone come in and snatch away one of my residents whenever they please. I don't even have any proof that you are who you say you are. I scrambled through the torn pocket of my coat for my wallet so that I could show this woman my ID, but I didn't have it. I'd left immediately after finding out that Dad was here, and I hadn't even thought to bring it. Can I... My voice broke. Can I at least see him? He'll be able to tell you who I am. What was left of Edith's smile faded entirely, and her face, still beautiful, was now terrible too. Vern won't be able to tell us anything at all, I'm afraid. What are you talking about? Of course he will. Listen, I'm not leaving until... Edith held up a hand and interjected with an impatient air. Ma'am, she began, but then our eyes met, and her expression softened. She sighed heavily. Okay. All right, but you'll need to fill out some forms. She gestured to the room behind her. Back there, you'll see an open closet. There will be a few clipboards on a shelf. Grab one of those and fill out the papers on it. I breathed a sigh of relief almost unable to comprehend how quickly Edith's demeanor had changed. It had been jarring, certainly, but not unwelcome. And once I filled out those forms, I thought as I walked to the other room and grabbed the clipboard, I'll be able to see. Every muscle in my body clamped up at once as a needle, long and thin, slid into my neck. I lost balance, falling backward, but could not move my arms enough to catch myself. I hit the floor with a thud, smacking my head on the wood. I realized with horror, as I lay there, that I was completely paralyzed. I could not move at all. From behind me, I felt Edith's hand slide under my armpits. She dragged me across the floor, then lay me down roughly. Something was leaking passively from the hole in my neck, though I didn't know if it was blood or wherever she had injected me with. My head was pointed at the ceiling, and I heard a small commotion next to me, but I could not turn to see. But then... Edith knelt beside me, and with one hand, nails exquisitely polished, she tilted my head to the side. There was a rug bunched on the floor, moved from its place and opened with a trapdoor with a ladder leading down into the darkness. And there was that sweet smile again. Geraldine, she crooned, do you see that cellar? You're going to die down there, and it's all because you're an ugly, tiresome woman, and I don't want to look at you anymore. And with that, she grabbed me by the front of my old ratty coat and hurled me roughly through the hole in the floor. I regained consciousness near the pantry, 
lying in my own sweat. I wasn't sure why I had awoken so suddenly. Perhaps Geraldine had landed on her neck. Such a fate would have surely been preferable to whatever Edith had in store for her. I had got to my hands and knees, feeling weak, and looked toward the place where the trapdoor had been, directly under our kitchen table, but it wasn't there anymore. Just a flat, hardwood surface. I crawled over to it and looked more closely. There was a slight difference in color. Some planks of wood were newer than others. There had been something here, but no longer. The sound of Chuck a few feet away, whining at his customary spot in the kitchen floor, tore me from my thoughts. It would be easy, I realized, to remove access to a building's cellar, but harder to remove the cellar itself. And I knew, as surely as I knew the color of my own eyes, that if someone were to rip out our kitchen floor, that they would find a cellar underneath, and a dusty set of bones, perhaps still clad in an old tattered coat. I knew something else, too. What to do next. I rang the doorbell and I waited for a moment. But it wasn't long before the sweet old lady answered, smiling. Oh, come in, come in, she said with enthusiasm, ushering me inside. Hang your coat there, she said, pointing at the mahogany coat rack at her entrance hall. Now I've got a hot water on the stove for tea. Let me offer you a cup. I nodded my agreement and followed her into her tidy, spacious home. It was elegant without being showy. The decor, timeless. She gestured to the couch in her living room, and before long, she tottered back into the room with two steaming mugs of tea. She sat on a plush armchair across from me. It's nice to meet you, Edith, I said. Well, I just can't imagine why anyone would want to bother with me, she replied. But regardless, you seem like a very nice young man, and I'm glad to be speaking with you. I grinned and pulled out my phone. Do you mind if I record this? It'll help our conversation flow more naturally if I'm taking notes. She hesitated for an almost unnoticeable moment before nodding her assent. Yes, of course, that's fine. Excellent, I said, then started my voice recording app, set my phone down, and began what would prove to be a very short interview. So, as Miss Vance, uh, your daughter, I mean, I call her Miss Vance, probably told you, I'm a writer with the high school newspaper, the forecaster. Yes. We're doing profiles of people in our community who are, uh, getting on in years, but who have made a lot of great contributions in their lifetime that can sometimes go unnoticed or underappreciated. Well, I'm certainly getting on in years, but she paused for a moment, as if choosing her words carefully. But I'm pleased with how I spent my time. I'm pleased with what I did. I'm sure you are, I replied. Now, what your daughter may not have told you is that I have a particular interest in telling your story, because you worked at the Halberton home? I'm sure you've seen that it's been remodeled into a house since then. Oh, yes, she said. I ran the place, in fact. And Jacqueline mentioned that you live there now? Which I think is just wonderful. I'm so glad the old bones are still around. It took me a moment, but I eventually realized that Jacqueline had to be Miss Vance. And continued. No sense in prolonging anything. So, my first question. Did you ever meet anyone who was angry that their family member had been put in hospice care? Maybe they would have come back one night, saying that they didn't approve and they wanted this person, their father, let's say, to be given back to them. Believe me when I tell you that a smile has never fallen off a human head so fast. She spoke haltingly. Why on earth would your first question be? Because the ghost of Vernon Chadwick's daughter, Geraldine, appeared to me and told me all about it. 
I said, eager to press my interrogation forward. She's still under our kitchen, you know. I suppose the ghost bit wasn't exactly true, but it had the intended effect. Edith was completely stunned. I wish you could have seen her face. Okay, so pass on question one then, I went on. Next question. When you killed Dorothy, uh, the woman who was staying in what's now our guest room, how hard was it to clean up the blood after? I only asked because she didn't show me that part. I mean, I saw the razors and the bit with the intestines, but I can't imagine it would have been very fun cleaning up. I I'm going to be sick, Edith stammered. Okay, but before you go throw up or whatever, one more question. Are you worried about what's going to happen when you die? By this point, Edith had turned as white as the medical gown she once wore. Are you threatening me? Oh no, actually, I said. I mean, uh, I'm not a psychopath, so I'm not actually going to hurt a sweet old lady, obviously. Thank you for the tea, by the way, I said, holding up my mug before taking a sip. I was having more fun than I expected. Maybe I was wrong, and there's a bit of a psychopath in all of us. I don't even want to bring you to any kind of earthly justice, given that it sounds like a lot of trouble and no offense, but you're probably not going to last much longer anyway, I continued. I'm just wondering, like, when you die, you know you're going to have to answer to them, right? Who? Edith began. The people you murdered, that Halberton home, I said as if it were the most obvious thing in the world. They're going to be waiting for you. Surely you didn't expect to face no consequence. You're a nasty liar, Edith said, clearly shaken, but all pretense of sweetness now absence. I wondered how this venomous being before me had been capable of playing such a kindly old woman. I shook my head. How else would I know this, Edith? Ask yourself. Really ask yourself. Is there any other way? She sat, staring at her lap, and I stood. I should go, I said, before you try to stick a needle in my neck. I'll write a nice article about you, though. I promise. Her eyes flicked over to my phone, still recording the conversation. Like I said, Edith, I'm not here to get you in trouble. I'm here to take away your peace. My... my peace? Yes, I said. You didn't just murder people, Edith. You tortured them. Maimed them. Many of them spent their final days terrified of the night you'd walk through their door. I don't know why you did it, but I know how the people you did it to felt, and I think it's only right that... In your final days, you feel the same way. I paused for a moment before concluding, and they agree. Edith died only six months later. I went to the funeral. Thank you for that lovely article you wrote, Miss Vance said to me that day. She wasn't quite the same in those last few months. I'm just so glad you were there to speak with her before she started to go downhill. It was my pleasure, I replied. Edith was one of a kind. I glanced at the corpse in the casket, skin sallow, expression vacant, and I didn't feel much of anything. I'm so sorry for your loss. I lied. I couldn't yet empathize with what must it feel like to lose a mother. I wouldn't lose my own for another two years. My mom went the way you might expect. If you've listened for this long, a deadly cocktail. She lay in her bed for over 36 hours before I noticed something was unusual. I emailed my professors and told them I needed some time to handle everything. They were very understanding, of course. Journalism programs aren't exactly the most demanding on offer. I buried my mom. I spent months trying to sell the house. Eventually, I was told that I should wait. That I could get more money when the market swings. I left my mom's room untouched, unentered for almost a year. 
But a couple of weeks ago, I decided to sleep in there. I suppose I was looking for her mark. I found a mark, but it wasn't hers. It was Vernon Chadwick's. I slept in there again the next night. Again the night after, and again, and again, and again. Chuck, my loyal, beautiful old dog, stayed far away each time. All told, the woman in white killed nine people in that room. That I know of, anyway. Each of them had been terrified. And each of them had known she was coming. It was on the tenth night that I finally witnessed my mother's death. She was conscious. Had felt her heart slowing, speeding up, slowing again. She couldn't move. Her thoughts were fuzzy. She muttered my name. There was a brief moment of clarity, and with it came regret. She was so, so sad. And then she was gone. In my journalism classes, I've been told that I always need to make my purpose in my writing clear. Never leave a reader wondering why, they say. But when it comes to this story, I don't know why. Because it's mine, I guess. Sorry, that's disappointing. I'll leave you with this. Somewhere on this earth, there is a place that holds great meaning for you. Perhaps you would recognize this place if you saw it. Perhaps not. It might be somewhere as familiar as your bedroom. It might be a place that hasn't even been built yet. Maybe it's in the shade of a giant elm tree, a hospital bed, a square of sidewalk outside a pizza parlor on the main street of your town. I'm speaking, of course, of the place that you will die. You don't know when. Nobody does. But death will come for you. And when it does, it will find you at a specific point in space. Do you see it every day, not yet realizing what sort of place it is? The place where your childhood memories, personality quirks, and hopes of the future will be extinguished like a candle flame robbed of oxygen. Who knows? Maybe you're there right now. You may not like it, but there is a place out there just for you. It's one of the only sure things in this world, and that's not all. You might just leave something there when you go. A mark. So delicate, yet so indelible, that someone not yet born might feel a chill down their spine as they pass by years or even decades later. I would know. My home is one of these special places. And there are so many marks here that it makes me want to scream. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. I'd like to welcome my newest patrons, Nick and Lana. Thank you so much for joining the Patreon. If you're interested, patreon.com slash Haunted American History. You get ad-free episodes, early releases, and now, coming very soon, all my YouTube content. All my videos and reviews and things like that of places that I visit will be up on the Patreon first, ad-free, of course. And, uh, yeah. So, later, folks. Thank you.